Uh, often, when we think of how best to be a Christian, we fall into the error of thinking in terms of what we can do to be effective, uh, to, for example, to win uh, the most amount of people in the best and most efficient way, we, we tend to think more pragmatically, right? And pragma- pragmatism, I think, has often clouded the vision and understanding of what exactly we're called to do. And we often think more in terms of what works, right? So you think of yourself as a Christian, say you want to be a good witness to the public, and so you, you try to think in terms of what works, um, What's going to win them over? Um, and I think that part of that is our consumeristic culture. We, we think what product can we offer that they would be excited about? They're going to receive it, and then they're going to purchase it and own it. You think in those terms, then um, it really does affect the vision and the understanding of what exactly we're called to do and who we are called to be. But all through Scripture, you see what God expects from his people, um, whether with Israel or with the church of Jesus Christ. It's clear throughout the Old Testament, especially in Israel's history, that God was and still is concerned with faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. We as God's people need to trust what God has said and we need to pursue faithfulness. So that kind of changes the framework a little bit of how we ought to live our Christian life. We can't be thinking uh, in terms of what's going to work, what's going to make it a successful Christian life, um, in sort of the terms that I, I mentioned earlier. But we ought to be thinking about what we can do to be faithful to what God had already prescribed or has already prescribed for us. Um, the scripture gives us clear instruction on how we ought to live that life. What are some of the um, imperatives, right? Uh, And those are the things that we need to pay close attention to, and we need to hear those things and allow those things to shape our Christian life. And we need to have faith in what God has already commanded, and we need to walk in those in faithfulness. What is faithfulness? Uh, Last week, uh, we looked at some of the things that the Bible says that are to be understood as God's will for our lives. Uh, the first one was to obey. You see that in John fourteen twenty one. Uh, we see that we're, uh, we, we ought to understand God's will for our, our lives, for us to be holy. That's the second one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. And then the third one was for Christ to be exalted. And you see that in Ephesians 1. Um, the whole chapter. So again, God's will for our lives is to obey, to be holy, and for Christ to be exalted in that. God made you, and he redeemed you, but he did this to show off his glory. Okay? How does he do that? Well, this brings us to a a great paradox in the Christian life. He shows off his work through your work. Now, I'm not saying that your work in the sense that um, the things that you come up with is how God is glorified. I mean, he could be. He, he, he doesn't lose any glory, right? But the way that God is primarily glorified through your life is through the works that are done through you in obedience to his word. Okay? 
Take a look at Philippians 2, uh, 12 through 13. You'll see it in your handout as well. It's the bottom of the, the, cover, the cover page. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 in your handout says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a participation that you partake in, right? You are uh, brought in to participate in a work that the Holy Spirit is doing. Notice where it says that work out your own salvation. So there's a participation that you uh, play in. It's your work in a sense, all right? Because you're, you're, you're in a sense, the hands and feet of, of something that the Holy Spirit is actually behind, the Holy Spirit is doing. So work out your own salvation, and then you'll see later on where it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work out his good pleasure. Uh, and this is, this is a, an interesting paradox because every good that you do, and when I mean by good, I mean specifically the good that God uh, prescribes in Scripture. Uh, what's good is really what God, said is good. God says is good. And that good that's produced out of you in your own deeds and your own actions is actually to be credited to the Spirit's work. So sometimes, I, I get this all the time, um, and not to... Not to make me the hero of my own story, but there are times where I'm at work and say a coworker or my assistant, uh, she'll come and she says, hey, you know, you, you deserve this because you did this. And um, one of the customers was pleased with your work. And, um, you know, you should, this is something to celebrate. So, you know, I humbly accept it and all that. But I, uh, some way, shape or form in, in those kinds of conversations, I try to say, you know, by the grace of God, or at least... Uh, not in an arrogant way, but I at least try to communicate that in some way, shape, or form. That really, the only good that I do is because God has empowered me to do it. Um, it's really it, the credit really does belong to God and His Spirit and how He shapes my heart. And you know, they're resistant to that. They 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 don't like to hear that because they uh, a lot of people who who don't really understand this concept of God being behind all of that. Um, they don't see that God is behind it. Uh, but really, we need to be giving credit to where credit is due. The good that is produced in us is because the Spirit is working that in us. So again, who ultimately gets the credit? The one who sent his Son to free you from the bonds of sin, right? The Spirit of God. The one who gave you a new heart. The one who is recreating your desires. Okay. The one who aids you by his Spirit and guides you by his Word. It's ultimately his work that we see as you become more holy. So he's the one who gets the glory. Now, God is, in a sense, the master sculptor. Uh, He's working on you in your sanctification to show off his power and to show off his goodness and glory. Now, that means that everything you do has value, but it has value in two ways. Number one, it has value because of what it accomplishes. So when you do something good or when you do something righteous, it accomplishes something. There's a human level to it, right? Um, Maybe you help someone and and through that action, they're helped by it. There's a human level to that. So there's value in what it accomplishes. And then secondly, it has value because your decision uh, to do it says something about God. 
So your actions speak um, about God's character. Uh, many, in many ways, it's, it's direct. It's received immediately. And sometimes it takes time for people to see it. But it does speak on... It does speak about God and, and his character. I'll give you an example, and this is one I pulled from uh, the website where we, got, we get our handouts from. Uh, I thought it was a good example. It says this. It says, let's say you're a uh, legislative assistant. Okay. You work hard all night to help a complex, complex piece of legislation to get through, keeping your cool when other people are you know, freaking out, not getting offended when people say mean things to you, you're focused. How does that show God's glory? Well, there's the substance of what has been accomplished, right? You've had a small hand in passing what you hope is a good law. And if it's a good law, it shows off God's glory by improving the government. Good government points to a good God. And after all, God intended government, right? But there's also the manner, the way that you handled that situation. There's also the manner in which you accomplished it. You worked hard because you saw yourself ultimately working for Jesus and not your boss. Isn't that interesting? That when you go to work and when you work for God and not the boss, um, although you are working for the boss, of course, but your heart and your strength and your effort and the quality of work that you're providing is motivated by a desire to work toward the king of kings, right? God, the true boss. Right? And so, again, you worked hard because you saw yourself ultimately working for Jesus and not so much uh, the human boss. You treated others out of self-giving love rather than self-serving obligation, which can be... Uh, Pretty countercultural in politics, of course. And displays, this displays the new life that Jesus has been building in you since the day you were saved. Your work is showing off his work. Now, I'm guilty. I'm not going to lie. There's times where I'm in the office and, uh, you know, just looking at my phone, <laughs> checking my updates, see who's, uh, see who's online. Boss comes in, you know, my boss comes in and I immediately shuffle, get my paperwork, <laughs> start looking and start marking things that are not even on the paper. <laughs> uh, you know, and there's that temptation to want to please the person or your, your manager there on duty um, instead of when they're not looking, having a, a work ethic that is one that desires to please God, knowing that God is everywhere and he sees all these things and he, he uh, searches the heart. Again, uh, your work is showing off his work. Now, when we gather forever, right, in heaven around God's throne, I think we'll be praising God for both of those things. We'll be praising God for the work that was done on an earthly level because God is wise and he sets it up that way. But we'll also be praising God for the work that he's been doing in us in, in ways that have displayed his glory to other people. The substance of your work and the way your work showed off his work is something that we'll be praising God about. But based on where the thrust of Scripture seems to land, I think that the second will often prove more important. That second part is what I mentioned, the, the God-glorifying part. That should take priority. Right? 
Um, of course, you can't disconnect your earthly work with that which is spiritual. Um, I think they're both tied together, but there is a priority. There is something that we have to keep as of first importance, and it, it is this task of glorifying God in all things. Retracing this line of thought, right? The Bible, uh, we see God's main goal in everything is to show off his glory. And as a result, he's more interested in what he's doing in you than what you actually accomplish in a temporal sense. So your work matters mainly because of how it shows off his work in you. Now, you've seen it. There are a lot of churches, and again, I'm not trying to be critical of other um, churches here, but there are certain... um, church, uh, I would say, structure or ways of doing ministry, certain ministry styles, that focus a lot more on the temporal. And they do wonderful acts of charity. And again, I'm not against that, of course. I think it's wonderful. But the focus is so earthly that they never actually get to the point of ministry, which the point of ministry is to exalt and to glorify Christ, right? To glorify God, our Lord. Uh, which, which means that there has to be this priority. There, there's a priority of the spiritual over, over the physical or the temporal. Nevertheless, you'll see that they are closely tied together. Now let's look at Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Um, I'm not sure if that's in your handout. It is. It is perfect. Okay, so it's in the on the left insert there. <clears throat> Matthew 25. Now we won't spend time reading the whole parable, but I'll summarize it a little bit. But be, before he goes on this long journey, um, I'll say it this way: a master entrusts money of different amounts to three different servants. Okay. Matter of fact, let's let's go ahead and read it let's, just for. Uh, it's just better to read it straight from the, from the word. Can I get a volunteer? Let's read that passage there. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered not scattered no seed. Then you ought to then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will who has will more for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you. So, just to kind of give you a background of even that text, uh, before he goes on this long journey, a master, he entrusts his money of different amounts to three different servants. Okay? And the first um, was to put the money to work and make more money. Right? And the third buries the money. 
And all three give what they have to the master at the end of the parable. The first two servants are rewarded, but when the third servant comes up, Jesus kind of changes the story a little bit. This is the unfaithful servant. So what did the unfaithful servant do to deserve, uh, you know, the outer darkness or that punishment, right? The weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did the unservant, uh, unfaithful servant do that was lazy and wicked? Well, he hid the money in the ground. Why was this wrong? Number one, he neglected his responsibility. He didn't consider his master worthy, first and, first and foremost. And, and what was the consequence, right? You see that he's thrown out into the darkness, into hell. Now, he seems like quite a, it seems like a quite a big consequence, right, for something that seems so simple like bearing money. Um, and considering that he gave the money back, you know, why did, why did he receive such a harsh punishment? Now, let me describe in, in a bit more detail what the servant actually did. The faithful servants trusted that the master would return, as he said, and so they risked absolutely everything on his promise. They didn't hold anything back. They were risky. They gave it. They used it. They spent it. And they didn't hold anything back. But the unfaithful servant decided to play it safe. Right? He either thought that the master might not return as promised, or that when he did, faithfulness wouldn't be rewarded. So he hedged his bet and reduced his risk by burying the talent and doing other things with his time. Now, the faithful servants trusted their master's word, and they trusted their master's goodness. But the unfaithful servant had faith in neither. Okay? When we put God in the place of the master, just to kind of take that story and actually put it in, in real life there, when we when we look at the master as God, as Jesus does here, we understand how evil this assumption is. God is not a hard master. He is beautifully, eternally good and satisfying and trustworthy. But what's more, God's stewardship advertises that God is good. Bad stewardship, stewardship says that God is not good. And since he is the source and epitome and sum of all that is good, defamation of his goodness is the essence of evil. Now, you may think that you can play both sides and please both masters, but in the end, your desire shows that you have no faith in God. This parable isn't about being a good or mediocre Christian, as if those categories even existed. It's about the difference between heaven and hell, faithfulness and disobedience. And what is, what is the good servant called by his master? He's called faithful. And again, going back to this theme of faithfulness. In the Bible, faithfulness means stewarding all that God has given us to show off his goodness. Stewarding our time, stewarding our money, and our skills, and our relationships. When we use all of that for his purposes, we show that we believe his purposes to be supremely good. And that's the life of faithfulness. A life of faithfulness is taking everything that you have, everything that God has given you, and stewarding it to the glory of God. So, a couple of categories here. If you work at a, in a certain position at your job, there's a way to steward your time there, a way to steward your, um, your labor. 
that brings glory to God. And this is what is being considered even in that parable. Um, if you're a parent, right, there's a way to be a parent that makes the best use of your time and your energy um, and, to, and, and to be a, the kind of parent that uh, stewards his role and responsibilities well in such a way that brings honor to God, the way that you raise your children. Uh, say you're single, the way that you use up your time as a single person um, to, to honor and glorify God with the, with the role and the calling that God has given you in this particular season. Uh, same thing goes with, um, let's say you, you did the whole parenting thing. Maybe you're moving into being a grandparent or maybe your children have left your house. This is a new season for you. Well, that season... Uh, was given to you as a gift, and it was meant to be stewarded to the glory of God. And then you think of more tangible items like money. Uh, of course, time is a, is, is a very important one, but money and property, um, you know, certain goods that you have, how do you use those things to bring glory to God? That is a life of faithfulness. Looking at all the categories that you're connected to, and say, in each one of these spheres and categories, am I being faithful? Am I using these things in such a way that brings honor and glory to God? This is our goal, even when it comes to decision-making. Every decision you make has the potential to say something true or false about who God is. Something, is, something like deciding when to go to sleep. I know that it seems like something that we, we don't take serious. But something like... Um, organizing your schedule, setting up your time to go to sleep, is a stewardship question. If you're staying up late, um, if you are, again, this is not to be legalistic at all. I know there's days that we do that, and that's fine. I think some fellowship uh, occasions may grant uh, for that to be you know, enjoyed, right? Staying up late and hanging out with friends. I think those are great things. But I'm speaking more in general terms. There, there are things that you can do with your schedule and you can say, I know if I go to sleep late tonight, my week is ruined. I'm going to be horrible at work. I'm going to be cranky. I'm not going to treat my children right. I'm not going to be sharp in the way that I think I need to be in order to uh, function well and to live that Christian life well throughout the week. So I'm going to say, well, I'm probably going to try to put some boundaries with my time and I'm going to try to steward my time well so that it's a more fruitful Christian life. There's things like that, um, that that we ought to keep in mind. But again, decision-making. Every decision you make has the potential to say something true or false about who God is. He cares hugely about that. Above all else, we want to we be counted faithful, right? Because faithful means we've used all that God's given us to show off his worth. Why care about that? Because that's why God created this world. The extent that we've been able to do that is what will matter most for all of eternity in heaven. Let me, let me dissect the idea of faithfulness or faithful focused decision making. Making decisions this way means three things. Okay? Number one means focus, right? It means making every decision with our eyes focused squarely on the last day. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
And so for the Christian, that is no reason to fear that day, of course. We're not, we're not, we're not to fear that day in the way that uh, a person who is lost is going to fear the day of, of the coming of the Lord. But with, our, with, uh, with John, in that passage, our cry should become Lord Jesus, right? We desire him to come, Maranatha. But it's a sober day, nonetheless, to put it mildly. To put it mildly. Uh, we should make decisions setting our hearts on things above and not on earthly things, Colossians 3.2. So there should be a focus on uh, a giving an account to the Lord. Number two, <clears throat> there's goal, right? It means that the goal of every decision is God's glory, and that needs to be always in our mind. Like a broken record, it just needs to be constantly being thought of. It needs to be repeated in your mind that all things must be done to the glory of God. Even the small things. I'll give you an example. Um, I think taking a break in your daily schedule or finding time for leisure or pleasure is good and it's important. Finding time for rest is important. But I think in our modern culture, we tend to think that what's restful and what is pleasurable is when you don't plan it, but when it happens spontaneously, like, oh, you know, I'm not going to do this. I just decided on the spot that I'm just going to take a break and just relax and lounge around. And a lot of times it, it uh, messes up your schedule even more and it has worse consequences. But you can actually schedule in your life a time for pleasure and a time for relaxation. And that isn't a waste of time. I know we think, we, we often think in a, such a hasty culture that we live in, that taking time to relax and lounge is sort of a lazy thing to do or a waste of time. But if you do leisure and rest to the glory of God, then you can actually plan that in your schedule and say, I'm going to take time to rest for the glory of God uh, because I, I know it honors God that I take this break because it's going to help you know, the rest of the day or the rest of the week. When you think in terms of the glory of God, and that's constantly being repeated, there's all kinds of things that you can do, as long as it's done in order, and it's done unto the Lord, and it's done um, in moderation, right? Me, it, again, God's glory needs to be the, uh, the, the center. There's the verse, one that we're all familiar with, um, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. A life spent well, a faithful life, is a life focused entirely on displaying the excellence of who God is. That's a life whose value will last into eternity. It has eternal significance. And the last one, number three, is considering the extent, right? It means that thinking of how all of me can be used in this regard, right? Regardless of what results... God chooses to bring from my efforts. We don't know what may come out of living a fruitful life that way. I want to put all myself at the service. This is the concept of the fact that you may live a life honoring God, but you may not immediately see the fruit of it. We don't know what the extent of it. Maybe you touch one life or another life, uh, or maybe it, it benefits your family. Sometimes you don't see the results um, the glory is not often displayed before our eyes. We have to trust that as we live a life glorifying God, that he'll take care of the rewarding. He'll take care of um, the results. 
And we have to be content in our heart for that. I, I know, you know, it's easy to do something in the public eye. And, and you may do it to the glory of God. You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to forgive this person and I'm going to give some of my money to this person. And everyone sees it and, and they clap. And you take your finger and you point it to heaven. You say, I do all this to the glory of God. <laughs> and you have an audience and you, there's your reward, right? Everyone's excited about you and how humble you are. But there's a, lot, there's a lot of things that we do that no one gets to see. And you don't, ha- you don't get that immediate applause. Uh, but um, we, we, need to, we need to have our hearts and our minds set on um, God being pleased on it and not so much man being pleased on it. Um, so when you do good and when you do things to the glory of God, try not to be discontent with the fact that no one's watching you. <laughs> it's hard, especially in a, a social media age um, where everything is displayed and it didn't really happen if it wasn't posted, right? Um, but try to be content and try to learn and practice to do things to the glory of God, even though no one gets to see it. Trusting that the Lord saw it and, and he will, he's pleased and he'll, he'll reward it. He'll, he'll get the glory. And that's, that's the goal. Now, this world says that your value is mainly in what you do. The more significant your contribution to society, the more your life is worth. But the paradigm of faithfulness is the polar opposite. Right? God says that your value is mainly in what your life shows about what he's done. Okay? And that means that sometimes... Uh, what is of immense value doesn't really register in the world's eyes, sort of like what I was saying. Now, whose life was worth more? Right? Think about the doctor who saved thousands of children's lives, or the recovering addict who spent every ounce of his faith and more just to live a normal life and be, a, be at church each Sunday. We, we can't say, we can't measure those things. But what we do know is that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And he may surprise us when we get to heaven as to which lives were truly faithful. Sometimes those things are not as obvious. Nonetheless, we have to live by faith. We have to do these things to, in, um, in honor and to the glory of God and allow God to sort out um, the values and, um, and sort out the, the results at the end. I want to take some time for questions or, or comments. Is, does anyone have anything that they want to comment on or any question that you may have? That's the thing that I find encouraging between this message and last week's message, like God's will and faithfulness, mm-hmm. is that it's not, kind of like you pointed out, it's not so much actually what you do as much as it is your heart and your mind while doing it. You know, there's a way to work properly. There's a way to work properly. There's a way to rest properly and improperly. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly what you're doing, but how you're doing it to the point. I think people look for direction in God's will and faithfulness for specific what do I actually do Right. when the answer is it's not exactly what you do, it's how you do it, Right. and which is different for each person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of like you said, it's like the struggle isn't getting the specific yes or no to an answer. Right. It's how are you saying yes or how are you saying no yeah. 
to the answer. Yeah. That shows the faithfulness. Amen. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, I think it, it's easier if we just had a list of to-dos, right? Um, you know, I, I personally know someone um, who's of the Muslim faith, and, um, and they, they know what they have to do, you know, and they do it. Um, but it's interesting how in Christianity, it's not that simple. It's not a list of things to do. And you'll notice, like, and sometimes I admit, I'll look into the New Testament and say, man, God, you could have just given me a list of what I had to do or, <laughs> or how worship ought to be done or all these, all these questions that we, we just want straight up answers for. But God is wise and he knows that um, he's dealing with something deeper. He's dealing with um, the attitude of the heart. He's dealing with the sinfulness of the approach. It's sort of like what you're saying. Um, it, it's the manner in which we approach all these things. You know, the life of a Christian here in America or in Florida specifically is going to look different than the life of a Christian um, somewhere else in a different country. And what I mean by different, I don't mean that we don't read from the same book and have the same instruction. We, there should be similarities there, of course. But as far as the struggle in the heart and some of the temptations in the heart, even though it is common to all men, uh, they may deal with certain things out there or um, we may deal with certain temptations here that are unique to our context. And this is why scripture seems to hone in at the heart and, and wants you to deal with the more foundational level of your actions, which is really um, the heart where all things are coming out from. And so that, that's an excellent point. Um, faithfulness really does begin there. You know? So, Any other comments or questions? Okay. I'll continue on here. <clears throat> we got about 10 minutes. Um, I want to go to the second point on the handout, which is on the second part inside, where it says, faithfulness brings freedom. Faithfulness brings freedom. So generally, the decision-making that we're used to is what you might call outcome-focused decision-making. Um, in other words, your goal of making a decision is to secure a particular outcome. Right? Like I talked about in the beginning. You can invest in a stock to secure your retirement. So it's like what you put in is what you're going to get out. Um, you take a job to secure wealth or happiness and so forth. Now contrast that with faithfulness-focused decision-making. So invest in a stock so as to be able to be faithful with the money God is giving you. You see how that changes the categories now? But trusting him entirely with your retirement. Uh, take the job to be faithful to God's command to work. But trust his providence for whatever your job might bring. That's, that's completely different from this sort of give, give and take uh, formula. And I think it's easier to be more... Um, Mathematical in the sense that you create a formula. You say, if I do this, this is going to be my outcome. And so that's where you bank your whole life on it. You say, um, if I get this degree, I'm going to get this job, and the outcome is going to be wealth, and that means I'm going to be set for life. Um, and that could be the case. There's sort of a natural uh, pattern of that. You know, what you put in is what you get out. What you reap is what you sow. You see that in nature. But as we read in the wisdom literature and scripture, we see that that doesn't always turn out to be that way. God can switch a few things around and things look 
the outcome is completely different than what you expected. Now, if that's the case, we see the importance, right, of not a outcome-focused decision-making, but more of a faithfulness-focused decision-making where when it's time to consider a job or when it's time to consider saving money or doing things for more practical benefit, you're still doing those things, you're still making those decisions, but from a spiritual perspective, from a faithfulness-focused perspective. And that's important. Now, just to tease out the differences here, um, let's contrast the two, right? The outcome-focused decision-making, we trust ourselves for the outcome. In faithfulness-focused decision-making, we trust God with the outcome. Like with the retirement example, um, you see that you, you make wise decisions with your money and then something completely unexpected occurs and then you end up losing everything. That, that's a possibility. The world says that you're a failure after that. But from the faithfulness perspective, you might actually be okay. Uh, your decisions were faithful, even if it didn't work out as you planned it. It still showed off God's goodness. And so that means that you have to be okay with failure sometimes. Things didn't turn out the way that you expected. You worked so hard for that degree, or you worked so hard for that job, or, you know, and then it, at the end, you didn't get what you expected, and your family thinks you're a failure, or other people say, oh, I, you know, I thought you would be more successful because you, you know, you did all, the, all, these, uh, all these things. But the Christian in that scenario, where, where it apparently seems like he failed, is probably still content, is still trusting in the Lord with that outcome. And even though the world may see you as a failure, you're perfectly happy, you're content, you, you, the bills are getting paid, and you may not be as rich as you want it to be. But the Christian doesn't bank or place all of his worth or value in what the world considers the better outcome or the, you know, the, the right standards of, of living. You have to be okay with failure sometimes because what you need or what God desires for you may be different than that. <clears throat> Number two, the outcome-focused decision-making in that we get the credit from good results, like I mentioned. Uh, in, faithful, in faithfulness focused decision making it's really about God getting the credit in that scenario and God trust me God gets credit God gets glory even when things fail in your life um, when there's little money sometimes God is honored more in that scenario than when you have everything that you need and everything that you've ever wanted <clears throat> so it's all about God getting glory out of your circumstances uh, in outcome-focused decision-making, success is something that we can see. Does the outcome happen that, is the outcome what we wanted? <clears throat> in faithfulness-focused in faithfulness decision-making, things are a little more murky. We won't actually be able to see what success was until we get to heaven sometimes. Although we can be confident we're being faithful to God if we're being obedient to his clear commands in Scripture. Um, so being okay with not always seeing the results, um, but being content that you've been faithful according to what God has revealed in the Word. Um, and finally, with these distinctions laid out, I want to look at how the concept of faithfulness brings great freedom in decision-making. Specifically, I have in mind three freedoms that uh, you'll see in the handout. 
Um, you'll see there freedom from perfectionism, freedom from unnecessary regret, freedom from pride. Let's talk about the first one, freedom from perfectionism. Some of us struggle with paralysis, right, being paralyzed in decision-making because we're perfectionists. You can't even decorate your bedroom <laughs> because it has to be so perfect. Um, it's either all or nothing kind of thing. Or you agonize about your decision of where to go to school or what house to buy. Your whole life depends on this decision, whatever decision it is. Or you're terrified to get married or to marry the wrong person. You're terrified to make one of those big life decisions. Now, I don't want to necessarily, necessarily downplay any of that. Those are legitimate fears, right? Um, but to take the last example, living in a bad marriage is, I don't think, you know, the, the consequences of like making a decision about marriage and uh, finding yourself in a horrible situation does have some consequences. So decisions do matter. Um, the same thing goes with uh, choosing where to move or you know, what school you go to or things like that, what job to take. So this is not to downplay any of that. But here's the key. You don't trust your, for example, using the, the marriage uh, example, you don't trust your mate picking um, that, the proudness of that. When you get married, you trust God. Right? You enter into that union out of faith. Um, there's a lot of things that we're going to be doing throughout our life that have to be made there are risks that have to be taken in order for you to move on and trust God in faith that these decisions are in God's hands. So a, a, a person who is um, more on the outcome-focused decision-making side lacks faith in the Lord, and so their whole life is anxiety. Their whole life is, like, if I make this move, the rest of my life is ruined, so to speak. Whereas Christians, we don't have that attitude or we ought not to we have to be a people of faith and actually i would argue that our whole life um in in a major way should be defined by risk risk is a good thing especially for the christian risk is something that we face all the time risk taking is um, a sign of a life of faith trusting in god with the results so freedom from perfectionism is important freedom from that um fear of if it doesn't work out perfectly then my whole life is, is ruined uh, there's a second one, freedom from regret um, freedom from regret, having made a decision, some of us seem to live life looking over our shoulders right? looking back at our past uh, freedom from regret uh, it's filled with fear that we may have made the, the wrong decision in the past. And if we're honest, sometimes that fear becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You're afraid of what you've, because of what you've been through, it, it starts to change how you make decisions in the future. And it becomes what, you know, what people often call a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't mean that in any mystical way. I just think when you're stuck in the past, it tends to affect your future. Sometimes that regret is driven by a fear of other opinions, right? Will people admire me for my foresight in, say, purchasing this house? Will my boss get angry at me for making such a foolish business decision? Will people ridicule me for my choice of, you know, decoration or carpet color that I choose to, 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 to put in my house? Sometimes that regret is driven by reality. 
it becomes clear that you did make a bad decision and you did overpay for something, an apartment that you, you got into. Uh, maybe you did pick the wrong roommate or you did rent a terrible vacation house or you did make a bad investment, whatever it is. What's your response? What do you do when you've made a bad decision? This is where it counts. How do you, how do you react to that scenario? Do you um, savage yourself? Do you beat yourself up for that bad decision? Do you obsess about where exactly all these things went wrong? Does that consume your whole life? That, that's a common thing that happens to, to many of us. It, it has happened to me. The thing you need to realize is that God could have kept you from making that decision if you wanted to. And this is where we have to start trusting in the sovereignty of God. He could have prevented it, but he didn't, right? And that is most certainly his power. Why didn't he? Well, he must have had greater things in view. What I mean by greater, I mean his plan is for this to happen. And that's just what it is. And you have to accept that. In a sense, I find uh, Revelation 15 comforting, and I'll read that. It says, uh, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the Almighty. Or, o Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Uh, you know, there's great things ahead of us. God is orchestrating all things to happen for his own purposes. And obviously this is the end, right? One day we'll stand with the redeemed in heaven and we'll be singing that song in Revelation 15. But the key uh, in that passage is where it says, your righteous acts have been revealed. And from that vantage point, we'll see that, we'll see all that God has done and it will finally make sense at the end. At that moment where, when we're singing this song unto the Lord, so to speak, we're going to be looking back and saying, you know, I see why all these things have happened in my life. And, and they, they were meant for your purposes, for your glory. You have to be okay with that. Uh, in fact, we're going to be rejoicing about that at the end. And that's the point. Now, it's quite possible that you were not faithful in how you made that bad decision. In that case, you should repent of your faithlessness sorrowful, not mainly because of the consequences of the bad decision, but because of a, a faithless decision that may have brought you in the place that you're in right now. So it's not to say that when you make bad decisions, you welcome it. And you say, I'm going to welcome bad decisions because of, right, God is sovereign. <laughs> no, you, you live a life of faithfulness, but when you look back and you see that you, you wasn't faithful, you weren't faithful at a certain point, uh, that you messed up, you made a bad decision, the proper response is to repent, ask God to forgive you, to help you, to give you wisdom, but then to move on. Because when you stay there, you stop believing that God forgives. You stop believing that God is sovereign. So repentance is due. Regret is due. Asking God for wisdom for future decisions is due. But you must move on. Because if you stay there, you don't believe that God can uh, help carry you forward. And that is being unfaithful as well. <clears throat> Last one, and I'll end here. Freedom from pride. Freedom from pride. So being a person that makes decisions on the base of faith, 
having your faith on God and not so much an outcome-based decision-making means that you're free from pride as it relates to the subject. What happens when your decisions actually do work out as planned? When your house appreciates uh, in value, your family loves, vaca- loves the vacation, your date is amazed at your thoughtfulness, you res- uh, excuse me, your resume builds like a staircase to heaven. It's a beautiful resume. Um, what happens if, if that whole outcome formula actually does work and things work out well? And because you worked out, uh, because you worked so hard, you do get the good job and you do get paid and, and you are successful. What happens when that actually works out in your life? Well, pride can build from there. And your dependency lies or rests upon um, your so-called wisdom and your effort and, and um, your input um, and that's not the right way to live. That's not a life of faithfulness. Again, even when things work out well, you, you have to fall back to that default position of living a life of a faith-based um, decision-making, a, a decision-making based on um, God's will and faithfulness to God. We have to fall back to that, or else pride uh, will come in. Uh, I'll stop there. I'll leave, again, maybe one or two minutes for any questions or comments. And, uh, and then we'll close out. Any questions or comments? <clears throat> yeah, Desmond. Um, um, you made a point about sort of that. You talk about risk and yeah. being fearful may or may not have to be Christian. I was thinking about 1 Peter 3, 6. Um, at verse 5, it says, This is how the holy women who hope in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their husbands, as Sarah of Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Mm. Um, it, it's just a sort of weird verse. He says, essentially, don't be frightened by something that's frightening. Yeah. Don't fear anything frightening. And related to Sarah, you know, who was bearing the Lord in her womb, but her and Abraham came up against these circumstances that were frightening or fearful circumstances, but they trusted themselves in the Lord. Yeah. So he's saying, you have, you're like Sarah, you have the faith of Sarah, you don't fear anything that is frightening. So it's not like we won't come against situations that cause us to be fearful or they right. become occasions to be fearful or frightened. Yeah. But I think the point there is that we um, entrust ourselves to God when we do come up against those situations. Amen. Um, because we are uh, often outside of our control, our power, but the Lord has brought us to them. Yeah. So it's an opportunity to entrust ourselves to the Lord again for the exercise of our own faith. Yeah. Amen. That's, that's excellent. Yeah. Very good. Yes, brother. Um, certainly, you know, it matters. You know, God has a uh, plan for each one of us. And to say that these are the decisions you should make and that you should, you know, it's it's hard because, like you say, we don't know the answer to everything. Just like Job never knew what happened and why it happened. 
a lot of things happen in people's lives, in believers' lives, and we don't know why that is. But something that I find always comforting and I come back to in my life is what Psalm 37 says. Yeah, 37, verse 4 to 7. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Um, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as, as the light, and your justice as the, as, uh, the noonday. Be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. Fret not when others prosper in, in your way. But so the aim of the Lord is to bring forth the justice, you know, in our, you know, in our lives. Some, sometimes it's through suffering, sometimes it's through other means. We don't know, but we, we need to commit ourselves to the Lord and trust in Him and, and, and seek His guidance. Another thing that I would read, um, when, uh, um, David wanted to. There was a big decision that David had, whether to go out in war or not. He would consult the Lord. He would consult the prophet and say, you know, should I go? Should I not go? Should I do this? Should mm -hmm. I do that? Mm -hmm. And God would answer him. Um, and then we need to do as believers the same thing. We don't have a prophet, but we have the Holy Spirit to consult. But we have the scriptures. Yes. And the last thing is, somebody alluded, I think you said, is that if we lack wisdom, what does James says? James says, if you lack wisdom... Because mm. the Lord will give us wisdom. Yes. You know, so so we all we have the resources, and we, we just need to use them and trust in the Lord. And we can't be well. This outcome is this. Mine has to be that way. Well, no. Right. We're all different, and God is accomplishing a different purpose in us individuals. That's right. Which is kind of nice. Yeah. Because we're unique individuals. Right. That's right. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I love that, uh, that James verse. Um, we have that resource, right? We come to the Lord and we can ask him to pour, out, pour down wisdom. And it's interesting how it says that he's happy to do it. I mean, he's willing to do it. There's no... Uh, there's, yeah, just ask. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, let me go ahead and close out in prayer. Well, Father, thank you for this wonderful time. Uh, thank you that you've showed us through your word what you call us to do and how you call us to live, which is to be faithful first and foremost, which means that our decision-making must be not on the basis of outcomes, but more on trusting in you and leaving the outcomes to you. And so, Father, help us to be faithful even when we don't see the immediate results. Um, help us to be content with simply pleasing you and honoring you in all that we do and help us to be good stewards to that. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.